Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on throwing behavior in animals. Now, in the previous episode, we uh, we focused almost exclusively on allegations from a paper published uh, toward the end of last year in 2022 about octopuses uh, throwing stuff or at least appearing to throw stuff deliberately at one another. Often not just stuff as in like hard uh, – singular objects, but like fistfuls of sand, just trying to throw the silt right in each other's eyes. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Octopuses playing dirty. But uh, I had been looking around to try to find a a good ancient myth or story that centered on the act of throwing, because it just seemed like there would be such a thing, right? Like a throwing contest between the gods or something like that. And I think this must have been a common set piece since time immemorial. I'm sure there are examples like that, but I couldn't find a good one for today. However, I did want to talk about a myth that draws an interesting connection between an act of throwing and the origin of humankind, or at least the present lineage of humankind. And that is the Greek myth of Deucalion and Pyrrha. Now, this one's not ringing a bell for me. If my son were around, I could uh, perhaps he, he knows this one. But yeah, this is not one that uh, that uh, that instantly springs into my head. Well, settle in. It's a good story. Uh, right. So the, the version of the story I'm going to reference is the one told in Ovid's Metamorphoses. So this is uh, going to include some some Roman flair on the on the Greek myth. Uh, Ovid, of course, was a first century BCE uh, Roman poet, and this is from his Metamorphoses, book one, translated by Brooks Moore. Now, the context 
of the uh, of the story is that it's sort of the Greek or Roman version of the Great Flood story that we know from from other ancient texts that we know from the Hebrew Bible that we know from the uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh and so forth. So uh, in this version, after the primordial ages and the origin of the gods and the giants and humankind, the gods look down on Earth and they're like, "It stinks. Human <laughs> humans are awful, disgusting, evil." Uh, there's a particular incident that really makes the gods upset where this vile king like Haon tries mm-hmm. to make Zeus and the gods do cannibalism to test their mm-hmm. omniscience. So he kills his own son, cooks him, and tries to serve him to Zeus to see, like, is Zeus going to know that this is my son? Hilarious. Yeah, I definitely remember like Haon. Uh, we've talked about him before. Yes, yes, he has come up. So Zeus or Jupiter decides he's going to destroy the world with a great flood. And he does. It's brutal. Uh, apparently only two humans are saved from, from the flood. And they're from the region of Phokis. They are a pious married couple named Deucalion, uh, who is the son of Prometheus, and Pyrrha, who is the daughter of uh, Epimetheus. Now, they survive the deluge, I think, on a little boat, and they end up beached on a mountaintop. It might be the top of Mount Parnassus. But anyway, they end up stranded on a mountain. The floodwaters recede, so they survive, but the rest of humanity has been destroyed. So what are they going to do now, now that they're all alone? And because they are a pious couple, they decide they should ask the gods for help. So here I'm going to start reading from the, uh, the Brooks Moore translation of Ovid. And after he had spoken, they resolved to ask the aid of sacred oracles, and so they hastened to Caphesian waves, which rolled a turbid flood in channels known. Thence, when their robes and brows were sprinkled well, they turned their footsteps to the goddess Fane. Its gables were befouled with reeking moss, and on its altars every fire was cold." But when the twain had reached the temple steps, they fell upon the earth, inspired with awe, and kissed the cold stone with their trembling lips, and said, If righteous prayers appease the gods, and if the wrath of high celestial powers may thus be turned, declare, O Thamus, whence and what the art may raise humanity. O gentle goddess, help the dying world." Okay, so they turn to the gods for help. They go to the temple of Thamus. Uh, Of course, all the fires have gone out because it's been flooding and it's covered with reeking moss. So the temple is even nasty now, but still they're going to kneel down and kiss the stones of the temple to show how how holy they are. And they they ask Thamus for help. And Thamus replies. So the, the poem goes on. Moved by their supplications, she replied, Depart from me and veil your brows, ungird your robes, and cast behind you as you go, the bones of your great mother. Long they stood in dumb amazement. Pyrrha, first of voice, refused the mandate and with trembling lips implored the goddess to forgive. She feared to violate her mother's bones and vex her sacred spirit. Often pondered they the words involved in such obscurity, repeating oft, and thus Deucalion, to Epimetheus's daughter, uttered speech of soothing import. Oracles are just and urge not evil deeds, or naught avails the skill of thought. Our mother is the earth, and I may judge the stones of earth are bones that we should cast behind us as we go. Oh, okay. So some some uh, textual interpretation coming in here. All right. So basically, the world has ended. They've come to the oracle, the oracle, and they say, Oracle, what should we do? Oracle says, 
You need to take your robe off and throw your mother's bones around as you go behind you. Right, but Pyrrha doesn't like this. So yeah, think, uh, I think I, I think if I'm interpreting this right, when they're saying Oracle here, they're talking about the goddess Thamus speaking to them because I think mm. uh, th- this would not be a human Oracle at this point. Right, right. But yes, uh, Thamus, I think, or whoever is speaking the Oracle here, I guess it's Thamus directly, says, yeah, take your mother's bones, throw, uh, you wear your clothes loosely, ungird your robes. <laughs> so kind of just like, uh, you know, sag your robes around and throw your mother's bones behind you. Pyrrha's like, I'm not, I can't do that. My mother's, but that would be really impious. And I'm especially pious. But Deucalion has the solution. No, no, no. This doesn't mean your mother's bones. It's a metaphor. Our mother <laughs> is the earth and the bones of the earth are stones. Makes sense. Okay. They, the Oracle could have been a little more clear from the get-go on that, but, but fair enough. Agree. So the poem goes on. And although Pyrrha by his words was moved, she hesitated to comply, and both amazed doubted the purpose of the oracle, but deemed no harm to come of trial. They descended from the temple, veiled their heads, and loosened their robes, and threw some stones behind them. It is much beyond belief were not receding age's witness. Hard and rigid stones assumed a softer form enlarging as their brittle nature changed to milder substance, till the shape of man appeared, imperfect, faintly outlined first, as marble statue chiseled in the rough. The soft, moist parts were changed to softer flesh, the hard and brittle substance into bones, the veins retained their ancient name. And now the god supreme ordained that every stone Deucalion threw should take the form of man, and those by Pyrrha cast should woman's form assume. So are we hardy to endure, and prove by toil and deeds from what we sprung." So they do it, they throw the stones, and what do you know? It works. All the stones Pyrrha throws become women, all the stones Deucalion throws become men. And I, I like the moral here, the fact that the new generation of humans, I guess the present one surviving, emerged from stones in this telling is why humans are are so rough and ready. Like humans can get things done. They're they can do hard work. They can they can really take a beating and and keep on going. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I think there might be some kind of interesting uh, evolutionary prescience in this story about the, the the present generation of humans arising from an act of throwing stones, because I think you could make the argument that throwing stones or throwing uh, uh, items fashioned out of stone is an early human technological advancement that is pivotal in the the uh, arising regime of technologies and behaviors associated with those technologies that create human culture. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I hate to keep going back to the um, the introduction to two thousand and one, a space odyssey, uh, <laughs> but we have discussed it a lot, and we've actually had an expert on the show <laughs> to uh, to discuss it with us before, but. Um, yeah, I mean, even in that uh, uh, presentation, we see the idea that, uh, yes, the, the use of tools uh, has a melee application, but also a ranged application. And our ability to throw things at threats, perceived threats, other individuals, either as a direct weapon or as a communication of intent, uh, mm-hmm. is, is an important part of, of human technology and the, the advent of human technology. But while some of the 
Uh, most notable examples of non-human animals throwing are found in primates. Rob, I think you wanted to get us started today by talking about elephants, right? Yeah, yeah. Elephants were one that jumped out at me because I, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by elephants, but I hadn't really read much about their ability to throw things. Uh, so I, I dove into this a good bit. Now, um, I, I want to advise everyone that I am going to get a little bit into the history of war elephants in this. I'm going to try not to dwell on any of the, you know, the gory details, but war is inherently cruel and monstrous and warfare involving animals is, is, is also cruel and monstrous. Um, and at the same time, fascinating. So yeah, I, I, I realize I'm something of a hypocrite on this myself in that I, I spend a certain part of every day horrified and fearful of warfare. And yet, um, you know, ancient warfare is, is a fascinating topic that I keep coming back to and actually find, find peace in, in, in studying and reading about and then uh, covering on the podcast. So, so there you go. Well, please tell me more. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So elephants have long been reported to throw things. Uh, they've been seen to throw rocks at other animals. Uh, there's even at least one case in when uh, an elephant was able to, to fatally uh, hit a human in a zoo environment. This was in Morocco back in 2016. You can look up uh, news reports on this if, if you want to see more. Uh, but even in the wild, there are some uh, there's some Im- impressive footage that you'll find online of, say, I think there's one of a of, a, of an elephant in Africa throwing a rock in the direction of a rhinoceros uh, near a waterhole environment, you know, where there's a lot of uh, interspecies interaction and standoffs. Uh, there is also uh, footage uh, I was looking at of a, an elephant. Again, this was an African elephant throwing a branch. At a uh, at a at a, uh, a tourist who is out in a jeep uh, to observe the elephants, and the the elephant is uh, essentially, I guess, saying, "I don't really want to be observed right now." Here, have the branch uh, of a small tree. Uh, so they definitely can throw things when they want to throw things, and you can certainly break down a lot of why they're throwing things. You know, there are there, as a communication, as a, as an actual an atta- actual attack. Uh, you know, some sort of expression of of aggression. Uh, a lot of what we talked about regarding uh, the octopus is very much in play here. Now, uh, in trying to picture this act of throwing, I'm assuming it, it is done with the trunk generally? Yes. Yeah, definitely the trunk. Um, and all of this really, anytime we're in, in talking about elephants throwing things, this is all just a subset of a larger study of elephant tool use that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, uh, multiple studies, uh, the, multiple observations. There's a lot of interesting data out there concerning not only aggressive use of branches and rocks wielded or thrown, but also the use of sticks or branches in grooming, thermoregulation, and fly swatting, um, something that Charles Darwin apparently commented upon as well. Fly swatting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are other things too, like the manipulation of branches to weigh down fences so as to cross over them. Uh, and sometimes there there may be examples too of them retaining certain sticks uh, for for use as a tool. Um, so you know, not sticking in their pocket or anything, but um, but behavior that seems to indicate that once a stick is useful, they may hang on to it for at least a little bit in order to keep using it. So it's not just a, it's not like this kind of random interaction, like, oh, there happens to be a stick in my trunk. Oh, well, I can sympathize with that because I, I'm, when I find a good stick, you know, not all sticks are equal, <laughs> that some sticks are way better than others. And when you find a good stick, you kind of don't want to let it go. Oh, yes. One, one especially sees this in, uh, in children on walks 
once they find a good <laughs> stick, they absolutely don't want to put it away, even if they keep almost hitting people in the face with it. So anyway, as far as elephants go, though, one of the more interesting ideas out there, however, is that tool use in elephants emerges primarily to contend with thermoregulation and parasites, uh, basically parasite control. Uh, both of these are important because the elephant, of course, basically has has no hair. It's a, it's a furless creature, and we tend to think of elephant skin as is thick and hard and sufficient protection against flies, but this isn't quite the case. Pain and blood loss from flies seems to be sufficient to provide for the natural selection of swatter usage. So mm. being able to pick up a stick, small branch, etc., and using that with the trunk to swat away these troublesome insects that, again, are messing with uh, the expansive skin of the elephant that is far more sensitive than you might give it credit. And the elephant has limited abilities to shoot the, those flies. It has the tail. It has uh, expansive ears, of course. Uh, but mainly it's depending on that trunk. And you can extend that trunk via tool use, via a small branch or stick, and use that to swat away the flies. Now, this is swatting, not throwing the stick at flies. That I don't think really would necessarily make sense. And I've yet to see anything about throwing as being a direct part of either activity, thermoregulation of their, their expansive skin or uh, regulation of parasites. Uh, so I think it's one of those things we might see as sort of a side skill to all that, an add-on skill that comes via the, um, the, the evolution of this amazing trunk and all the abilities of this trunk, as well as just their, uh, their ability to use tools. Yeah. Well, you can imagine throwing as, um, as at least possibly on a continuum with the extended reach you get from a tool. So, you know, mm -hmm. by picking up a stick, you in effect, make your arm longer. You can hit or reach at something farther away than you can with your biological arm. And then if you could release that stick at just the right time, it could fat could in fact go even farther. Yeah. So the basic ability here is not at all surprising. The elephant trunk is a highly tactile proboscis composed of some, 40,000 muscles. This is a frequently cited number anyway, though I, I do see some different figures out, be, out there. But any way you shake it, whatever the number happens to be, it, it dwarfs the sum 650 muscles in the human body. Well, maybe just because I have them on the brain, but I, I almost want to compare the elephant's trunk to an octopus's arm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to compare there, just in terms of how much ability there is for the, uh, for, for the trunk to move around. Well, I think I'm also thinking about that because there are no bones within the trunk. Mm -hmm. So like our arms and fingers have bones in them that make them rigid along certain, you know, axes of motion. Whereas the elephant's trunk has no bones at all. It's uh, it's a mass of like muscles and fat. So it has a, a kind of uh, almost octopus-like, I mean, not truly, not truly octopus-like, but uh, more in the octopusy direction uh, in a range of motion and kind of floppiness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the papers I was looking at uh, for this uh, section is from Scott L. Hooper in uh, 2021 edition of Current Biology, a paper's titled Motor Control, Elephant Trunks Ignore the Many and Choose the Few. In this, Hooper writes, quote, the elephant trunk is a muscular hydrostat with essentially infinite freedom of movement. Now, the paper itself here, as the title suggests, explores how the elephant focuses on certain ways of moving the trunk to achieve various objectives. Again, this is interesting because unlike with something like the human arm, 
the possible movements are far less restricted. Like you say, it's it's not like an arm where you have, yes, the, the human arm is amazing in what it can do and the range of motion that it has, but still there are limitations in place just based on how it is constructed, uh, the bones, the ligaments, etc. Like you can't bend your forearm in the middle of your forearm or you can't build, bend your elbow backwards. Right, like it would be interesting to see a list, like all the possible ways you might move your arm in all of the like the 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 the, the, the small differences all the different ways you might scratch your nose <laughs> however many methods you come up with however many movements you're able to decipher the elephant and that it, it is just is going to have you beat every day like there're just so many more ways for it to potentially move its trunk right and uh, this was really interesting. In the paper, uh, the author points out that when control for body and brain size, elephant cerebellums are physically much larger than expected, and that 97.5% of elephant brain neurons are in the cerebellum. Uh, this is a part of the brain that is, among other things, associated with fine motor control and movement error correction. So they point out that, quote, it is tempting to hypothesize that this extreme hypertrophy is due to the greatly increased motor control challenges a muscular hydrostatic trunk poses. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. 
Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So anyway, in general, though, there's a great deal that an elephant can do with its trunk and many things that it does far more often with said trunk. Uh, but clear th throwing behavior, again, has been observed. They're perfectly capable of throwing branches, rocks, and in cases of hostile interaction, uh, yes, other organisms, including people. Oh. One question that ended up coming up for me, though, is can they throw arrows? And um, I, I hadn't thought about this, There's a, but uh, I ran across this interesting passage in Plenty of the Elders, The Natural History. So if you have your Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Plenty of the Elder punch card, please go ahead and uh, put another star punch through there, and you're one star closer to your uh, gigantic hoagie. So I'm uh, going to read from Pliny here, quote, uh, and just as a reminder, Pliny, of course, uh, first century CE Roman author uh, that we've discussed many times on the show. Quote, the first harnessed elephants that were seen at Rome were in the triumph of Pompeius Magnus over Africa when they drew his chariot, a thing that is said to have been done long before at the triumph of Father Liber on the conquest of India. Prosilius says that those which were used at the triumph of Pompeius were unable to go in harness through the gate of the city. In the exhibition of gladiators, which was given by Germanicus, the elephants performed a sort of dance with their uncouth and irregular movements. It was a common thing to see them throw arrows with such strength that the wind was unable to turn them from their course, to imitate among themselves the combats of the gladiators, and to frolic through the steps of Pyrrhic dance. After this, too, they walked upon the tightrope, and four of them would carry a litter in which lay a fifth, meaning a fifth, fifth elephant, which represented a woman lying in. They afterwards took their place, and so nicely did they manage their steps that they did not so much as touch any of those who were drinking there. Huh, so I have a kind of mixed reaction to that. On one hand, I think it's quite clear from, you know, modern examples that elephants can be trained to do all kinds of interesting things. They are intelligent animals, and they have a very adroit uh, uh, manipulation ability through their trunk. And yet I'm, I feel kind of doubtful when it says this thing about the arrows that they are able to throw the arrows with such strength that the wind was unable to turn them from their course. I, I guess I'm imagining from that statement, though it doesn't directly say this, that it's like throwing arrows as if into a target. So actually aimed so that they go tip first and hit something even when the wind is blowing. I, I, I don't know. Pliny doesn't actually say that, but that I would assume that's what he means. 
Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure how to take the wind thing either. If that's if that's something that we should focus on, or if perhaps you know something lost in translation here and through the ages that this is just kind of a standard way of describing an arrow being um, uh, uh, fired with precision, you know. Yeah, well, I guess it's the precision I wonder about. Like, if he's just saying that <laughs> that like they can throw arrows, sure, I, I guess that that doesn't seem controversial. Like they could throw sticks. If he's saying they could throw the arrow with the kind of like point forward precision that an archer can shoot an arrow, then I'm like, oh, whoa, I don't know about that. Yeah, he makes them sound like they're natural sharpshooters. And and granted, most of this description is clearly describing elephants that have been trained to perform for the amusement of humans, but it's referencing combat, it's referencing war elephants as well. So, you know, part of me was wondering, it's like, did um, did they train? Did they actually train elephants to throw arrows? Did they have any kind of combat uh, initiative in mind here? Surely not. And also wondering, just is is this at all accurate? Can elephants do this? And uh, on the on that side of the uh, the issue here, uh, indeed, Asian elephants are still trained to throw darts at balloons as a spectacle. What? This is again something that you can look up multiple videos of online. Uh, I don't think there's any trickery involved in these. It's just they have they have trained the elephant and the elephant will take a dart, fling it with its trunk and hit a balloon that's affixed to like a wooden board or something. Hold on a second. I am uh, I am taking a moment to watch this video. Okay, I took a moment to watch a video. I I am simultaneously very impressed and it makes more sense now because at least in the video you shared rob the elephant dart throwing it is throwing a dart and hitting balloons and popping them but it is not a straight on uh line drive like you know like an archer would shoot an arrow it's more of a toss of a dart that happens to land point first on the balloon and hit it right and you know ethical concerns over training elephants for amusement aside yeah, it's pretty impressive. And I think it, it, it certainly speaks to the throwing ability of the elephants. It Again, like you said, the, the dart um, uh, throwing here is very much in line with other kind of throwing feats one sees from elephants, including some of these, uh, these, these incidents that have occurred uh, in the wild or sort of more or less in the wild. Yeah. Now, again, given the historical use of Asian elephants in warfare, you might well wonder if this ability was ever exploited for war. Because, yes, war elephants were a part of warfare in in parts of the world. Um, They were typically used, though, as powerful bulldozing steeds and shock weapons. They could also serve as is a sort of a weapons platform of sorts. You know, you could have a, a, a place on top where not only is the elephant rider present, but perhaps someone uh, brandishing a spear or a bow of some of some sort. And in some cases, not only did you have additional armor added to the the elephant, uh, and I should, probably shouldn't even say additional armor, just armor, because again, you think of the, the skin of the elephant as being this kind of like natural armor, and uh, you know, I think for the most part we're uh, we're dealing with, uh, with with part of the animal that's far more sensitive than we think. So yeah, there there are numerous examples uh, that survive today of the sort of armor that we placed on the elephants. Sometimes that armor would be augmented with spikes or blades, and there were also special elephant swords that could be affixed to the tusks. I apologize, I can't remember where I read this, but I know I've read at least one historian's opinion before that. Elephants uh, in ancient warfare would have been more useful for psychological impact than they were for direct, like, 
you know, uh, mechanical advantage on the battlefield and that most of what you could do with an elephant, you could probably actually do better with just uh, cavalry mounted on horses. Yeah, that, that lines up with a lot of what I've been reading here. It's like we, we should not think of the war elephant as some sort of super weapon. Uh, it's, it, it was a specialized uh, weapon, a specialized use of the elephant and, and rider and various other weapons that needed support, uh, needed just the right situation to be useful and, uh, and, and yeah, so there's a, there are a lot of ins and outs. You can't think of it again as this thing that, oh, once, once you introduce war elephants to the game, you've got it won. One of the books I was looking at here is um, a book by John M. Kistler titled War Elephants from 2006. And uh, in this, he mentions that, uh, this, uh, that some sources mention blades affixed to trunk armor as well. Though I I don't take that to mean I personally didn't take that to mean that you would actually have some sort of scenario where you would put a sword on the trunk end of an elephant's trunk. I think that would be more like blades higher up on the the armor that's kind of protecting the the front of the elephant's face. Mm. But he this is a book that goes into depth on elephant warfare, probably more than a lot of you <laughs> really want to want to read. I mean, it's a very readable, very good book. But again, war is cruelty and elephant warfare is also just loaded with cruelty. There are a lot of elephant deaths that are described in this. You know, it gets into not only the gory particulars of waging war with elephants, but also waging war against elephants. And, uh, but there are certainly accounts of, uh, that are mentioned in this book of enemy soldiers being crushed and thrown by the trunk of, of the elephant. And in some cases, um, throwing the horse as well, if it's encountering like a man mounted on a horse. Mm. Now, I, I looked through this book. I did not find any examples of war elephants actually throwing projectiles as, a, as an offensive uh, weapon tactic, though it is mentioned that Scipio forced his elephants into battle against Caesar's forces with rock slingers. So these would have been human rock slingers marching behind the elephants, pelting them with stones to get them to continue forward. Mm -hmm. uh, so this would have been, uh, I think, 46 BCE. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you encounter with projectiles and elephants are dealing with, in this case, making the elephants move forward into battle um, and, uh, and all of the, the, the grisly uh, realities that await them ahead. And then also you find plenty of discussions of projectiles being used against elephants, such as specialized like all-metal arrows and so forth, darts, um, caltrops, and other things that would be useful, fire uh, added to projectiles as well that would be useful in combating uh, elephants that are used by your enemy. Kistler also brings up an account from Plutarch's Life of Alexander, 4th century BCE, in which the Indian king Porus was said to ride an, a war elephant that was so loyal that at one point it softly kneels down and begins to draw the enemy darts out of the king's body uh, so that he continue, can continue fighting. And Kistler weighs in on this and says, quote, such stories are not preposterous. Elephants do form intimate bonds with their human riders and have been known to protect their human friends and may even die of grief when their partner is lost. Megasthenes, a contemporary of Alexander, attests to both. Wow. However, this, of course, is not dart-throwing, natural or otherwise, and Kistler makes no mention of elephants being trained to throw weapons. I think my, my take on this is, generally speaking, human armies capable of using war elephants are going to also have access to much better throwing projectile technology, such as a bow used by a human, even a sling used by a human, uh, catapults, and so forth. Using a war elephant to throw a rock would just be a misuse of the resource that you have there. 
Yeah, that is not what the elephants are best at. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, Kistler gets into this a little bit as well. He's speaking directly about the sieges of Hannibal uh, here, but he says, uh, in talking about the limitations of the war elephant, quote, elephants do not make good siege weapons, but they do make excellent siege laborers. So again, a situation where um, at any given moment, an army that has elephants is going to have to use them where they are where they are most useful, uh, be it as a shock weapon or as just labor to help um, uh, operate the other weapons of war. So and when it comes to lobbing projectiles at your enemies, better, I would imagine, to have human archers atop or near elephants to handle the ranged weaponry and allow the elephants to do their thing, hopefully in a matter in a manner that advances the front line rather than recedes it. Because that's another thing you run into, like the use of the elephant on the battlefield. Um, it is kind of a, there's kind of a contained chaos to it. Uh, you definitely, uh, if you are the one using the elephants, you want them to, to keep going towards the enemy and not to, uh, uh, to, to panic and turn back on your own forces. Yeah. Still, there are certainly many accounts of war elephants grabbing, crushing, throwing human adversaries, sometimes off their mounts, and then in some cases inflicting such damage to the to the uh, the mount as well. Well, this is interesting because it raises sort of a third category of animal throwing behaviors that we didn't really get to in the last episode. When we were talking about that study on octopuses, we made the distinction between throwing at and throwing away. So sometimes an octopus would. Uh, quote throw again to to remind you what the octopuses did was not purely by like grasping something in the arm and then rapidly extending the arm and releasing the object they would hold the object with their arms and then blast the object with their funnel or siphon with a jet of water to propel it through the water toward a target uh, or at least allegedly toward a target but the two categories of throwing they talked about in this paper were throwing at and throwing away so throwing away is just like you're trying to get something out of a certain place like cleaning out your den would be a throwing away behavior you're trying to get all of the the scallop shells out of there uh and and make a make a clean place for you to settle down or throwing at would be trying to hit a target here you could have I don't know what this would be. Uh, if you're like grabbing an adversary and throwing it, that's not really throwing at or throwing away. The object of the throwing is the object you're throwing, not an object you're trying to hit. But you're also not just trying to get it out of your way. You're trying to harm it by throwing it. Yeah, I think there's there's at least one account that Kistler shares, again, from, from ancient writers where someone is thrown and then they hit a rock and it like breaks their back. But uh, that's it's hard to really weigh in on that. Like, was the elephant in this case throwing the human at the rock or did the, the elephant just throw this human aside right. and they happened to land on a rock? Right. That I wasn't alleging. Clear. Yeah, I wasn't alleging that the elephants like knew what they were doing in that type of throwing. Yeah. But I think we have one more example of an animal where that third category, the the you might say throwing into, where the the main object of the throwing is what happens to the object thrown, not the object it's thrown at. And it's not just trying to get the object out of your space. You're, you're trying to act upon the object by throwing it. And th this comes up with the mongoose. I was surprised by this. I, I don't really know much about the mongoose, uh, so I wasn't expecting it to, to be a, a projectile tool user or a projectile, uh, maybe not, maybe tool user is going a little too far, but a, ca a, a creature capable of throwing objects. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder, would this count as tool use or not? I don't know. We can talk about the details and then see what we think.
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. There are different families of mongooses, about 34 species in total. They have strong rodent vibes. There's definitely a rodent energy to them. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with them, you happen to see them. If you happen to be in a, a region where you have mongooses around, you might think, oh, they, they're behaving much like rodents. They seem to be feel, filling that, that niche at the very least. But they're actually more closely related to hyenas and fossas. They are carnivores, and they're pretty oppor opp opportunistic. So they, they feed on vertebrates, invertebrates, live prey, carry-on. 
they're, they're all about figuring out how to go about getting their daily allotment of meat. What kind of puzzles do I need to solve to get my meat? What do I need to crawl into to get my meat? Uh, and and uh, and this is this is the kind of area where uh, often we times we see this more with the omnivores, like uh, we've talked about the raccoon before. This creature that uh, that is savvy in its ability to to find these different uh, forms of food. And here we see it with the carnivorous mongoose. Now, as they're trying to get at the meat, sometimes the thing about your meat, sometimes the meat is you know s- smeared on the side of the road, or it's uh, um, or it's uh, nice and soft and easy to tear into. But other times, you'll find that the meat that you desire as a mongoose is encased. Mm. Uh, this would be the case with something like a millipede. Like there's there's gooey stuff on the inside that you want to eat, but there's hard stuff on the outside. Uh, bir- uh, bird's eggs are another example. Hard on the outside delicious and liquidy in the middle. Beetles, balls of dung are also brought up in uh, some of the, 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 the sources I was looking at because the ball of dung might have, a, for instance, a, a beetle uh, inside of it and you want to get at it, but on the outside you have perhaps this hardened dung. So how are you going to get the meat that is such so encased? Well, a reference that comes up on this question is a paper from 1967 by Thomas Eisner and Joseph A. Davis, a couple of biologists. I think one was affiliated with Cornell University uh, and I think maybe another with the Bronx Zoo. But the paper is called Mongoose Throwing and Smashing Millipedes, published in the journal Science. Now, I actually had trouble finding the full text on this one, but fortunately, I was able to sort of piece it together with some sections quoted in books and a blog post I found uh, summarizing it by an archaeologist named Michael Haslam. But this study looked at a uh, relationship between the mongoose and a genus of African millipedes called spherotherium. Spherotherium, you want to do the etymology on that? What does that mean? Ball beast. <laughs> Now, compared to the tiny roly-polies or pill bugs that uh, we're used to here in the southern United States, Rob, these things, the spherotherium, are indeed beasts. Some species are very large, comparatively. I I found a picture of somebody holding one in their hand for scale, and this one looks to be about the size of an uncracked walnut. It's pretty big. They also have thick, tough plates of armor uh, compared to roly-polies or pill bugs. And as a side note, Uh, I just wanted to mention that our familiar roly-polies here are actually not millipedes at all. They are isopod crustaceans, terrestrial crustaceans that moved out of the sea to colonize land millions of years ago. Huh. I don't think I quite uh, realized that. Way to go, (laughs) roly-polies. But so, okay, to this study, the authors were doing some testing to see which predatory animals were able to to get the meat, like you're talking about, to, as Mick Jagger would say, get the meat, <laughs> to uh, uncase the spherotherium's tough outer defenses and get at what's inside. If it balls up, is this millipede basically invincible or can anybody crack the nut? Uh, now, in other parts of this study, the spherotherium in ball mode survived attacks by a colony of harvester ants. They survived attacks by blue jays and uh, certain species of mice. But then to read from the author's observations, quote, the unexpected occurred in tests with a banded mongoose or mungos mungo. The predator responded instantly to the glomerid, and that's referring to the millipede here, the glomerid, sniffing it and rolling it about with the paws. It seized it in the jaws, biting upon it with sharp teeth, but the millipede was neither punctured nor crushed. 
Suddenly, the millipede was dropped from the jaws and grasped with the front paws. The mongoose backed against a rocky ledge in the cage, assumed a partially erect stance, and, with a motion so quick as to be barely perceptible, hurled the millipede backward between its legs, smashing it against the rocks. Fatally injured, with its shell broken and its body torn apart, the millipede was promptly eaten. This this is a, a great image. So, for, first of all, um, I, I, I I don't have an answer for this question, but I do wonder about like how strong the bite of the the mongoose is. Like maybe their 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 bite strength isn't uh, isn't as powerful uh, as uh, as would be required to say if you were going to actually bite down on this millipede and crunch it in your mouth. Or maybe it has to do with the size of the millipede. I don't know. I found some. Some great images of uh, of a mongoose gnawing on an egg, <laughs> trying to sort of get its 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 horrible little uh, <laughs> mouth around the egg. And uh, I don't know. It might, it, in, in this case, perhaps the the mongoose is able to actually bite through that egg and crack it. Certainly, an egg is different uh, than uh, than a hardened uh, large millipede. But like I say, they have been observed to to take eggs and strike them or throw them as well. So I don't know. My second uh, question that came up, because I, I was looking at some different sources, but I came across similar descriptions, and I was trying to picture it. And I was like, am I picturing this right? Is this a granny shot? Is this, is this like the granny shot with the, with the bat? Well, I guess it's, wait, no, the granny shot is when you or use your arms as a pendulum between your legs and throw the ball. What is it called when you project the ball back between your legs? It's a reverse granny shot. Okay, reverse be. granny shot. Okay. <laughs> But yes, that's what's going on here. Uh, if you want to picture it, the mongoose, uh, the banded mongoose here is it's like sort of standing with its legs apart and then picking up the millipede with its forepaws and then leaning over and throwing the millipede backwards between its legs to smash it against a rock behind it. And you included for me a couple of wonderful illustrations to drive home how this works. I think these illustrations are actually from the original paper but they were uh they were included in that blog post i, I referenced by uh, haslam <laughs> yeah they're, they're quite amusing we were talking before the recording about the uh in, in the first shot uh, we see this uh, this this uh, mongoose clearly uh, thoughtful about its task concentrating on what it's doing millipede grasp between its 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 paws uh rock behind it and then in the next picture bam it has thrown the millipede the millipede is in flight back between the creature's legs and he's just kind of looking at us the viewer <laughs> this is occurring yeah yeah making sort of shameful eye contact with the illustrator but but even this 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 illustration also drives home that like this is a creature that has like a, a, a tail um it's uh its legs are not nearly as long as human legs so it seems like a, a very it's a precision shot there's nothing like clumsy about this well i wonder why the throwing happens behind the animal instead of in front of it. So yeah, it, would, it has to get past the legs and the tail to do this. But since the, the behavior has evolved this way, there must be a, an advantage to the, to the rearward throwing, right? Like maybe the animal can get more momentum throwing in that direction than it could throwing forward. I, I'm not sure. Well, it, what it reminds me of is digging behavior. 
Um, mm. And uh, and the, the mongoose is certainly a creature that 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 I imagine is going to dig around for things. You know, maybe in not actual burrowing behavior, perhaps, but we're talking about scratching around in the dirt, going after, say, millipedes, small bugs, etc. And you know, what is the we can sort of imagine the the steps between basic digging, throwing the dirt back between your rear legs, and then launching small creatures backwards as well and making them hit a rock wall or something. Hmm, yeah, okay. Basic mongoose technology, either way, I guess. Well, anyway, uh, uh, so uh, apparently for the banded mongoose, picking up and throwing food is part of their normal behavior. This wasn't just like a one-off weird thing that happened in this zoo environment. It is something Mm -hmm. that has been observed in the wild, and it's part of a behavioral repertoire that may, in fact, be passed on through a kind of teaching and observation between older Mm -hmm. mongooses and younger ones rather than strictly through uh, uh, inborn instinct. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I was looking around at it for, for various videos of this, and I, I did find a number of videos showing them with different uh, encased foods that, that do look more like a striking as opposed to a throwing. But I guess one can imagine that these would be sort of related, right? Especially mm-hmm. if the, the striking, if I'm remembering correctly from the videos I was looking at, some of the strikings are kind of the same initial movement instead of launching the encased food back between the legs, though bringing it down straight onto the ground or onto some sort of rocky surface. Mm. Good job, mongoose. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the the dropping techniques that have been linked to other um, uh, organisms that are capable of flight. You know, if you have something like, uh, I think the, um, uh, you know, you have cases where uh, a lammergeier may drop uh, bones to shatter on rocks far below. They're able to use a gravity assist on that act. But if you're just a mongoose, well, you don't have gravity like that. You can't very well soar up into the sky and then drop it. You've got to hurl it instead. Mm, yeah. I also like that this in this case, the animal is throwing the object behind them just like Deucalion and Pyrrha. Yeah. I think there's that's where the comparison stops, though. I I don't see how the millipede really becomes the new generation of mongooses. Well, we just don't we don't have much insight into the religious lives of of the mongoose. It's true. All right. Well, I think that does it for part two. Uh, but hey, should we continue looking uh, at animal throwing behaviors in in a part three? Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I know there's there's certainly a lot in the primate world, and we kind of skipped over that because on one hand, primates throwing things that's it's obvious like, on on top of the various uh, non-human primate examples, we know that of course humans are are the greatest throwers on earth. Um, so, but there, the, 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 but not to take away from the the primate world, uh, the, the larger primate world, though, because there are some amazing examples of the use of projectiles and uh, the selection of projectiles, and even the um, the storing of projectiles for later use. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we get into. We could also uh, get into uh, how it plays into uh, human evolution and so forth. So if if uh, listeners want more animals throwing stuff, we can certainly uh, put together some more episodes. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention this uh, this earlier and I forgot, but um, John M. Kistler, who wrote the book on war elephants, also wrote a historical fiction novel titled Elephant Lord, set during the Second Punic War. Uh, and I looked at this. Uh, I didn't pick it up yet, but I saw that you can get it on Kindle. Uh, it looks pretty interesting. Hmm. I was I was trying to ponder, like, maybe this is a better way to get my... Um, to scratch the itch of curiosity over, over um, you know, all the details of, of elephant warfare. Maybe if it's in a, within a fictional shape, it'll be kinder somehow. I don't know. All right. 
All right, so we're closing it up there. But uh, yeah, write in. Let us know what you think. If you want to hear more episodes about animals throwing stuff, be sure to let us know. Perhaps you have examples from the animal world that we didn't touch on that you'd like to bring up. Perhaps you just have observations of elephants or the mongoose that you would like to share. It doesn't have to be directed directly related to throwing things, uh, but maybe you do have those experiences you would like to, uh, to point out to us. If so, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on weird Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, Max Williams. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.